Welcome to Harbour. We are a progressive Christian faith community based in Carrickfergus, Northern Ireland. You can also find us at harbourfaith.com. So our first session tonight is Who is God in a Multi-Faith World? I suppose a better title might have been What do we mean when we talk about God? See, when most people think of God, there is there in the background uh, this image of an all-powerful being who exists in some other dimension and expects a certain level of obedience from humankind. This being uh, is usually quite a stern figure, although you can get on their good side by ticking whatever boxes any particular religion says you have to tick. So speaking of religion, there are at the last count something like four and a half thousand different religions. So the major ones are Christianity, and about 32% of the world's population would acknowledge belonging to Christianity. Uh, the next one is Islam. Uh, you've got about 21% there. The next major grouping is actually non-religious, which is about 16%, followed by Hinduism at 14%, Buddhism at 6%, and then a collection of other Chinese religions would make up about another 6%, and then there are lots and lots of uh, minor religions after that. So the question is, who's right? Which one of these religions, which one of these views of God is the correct one? Well, if you've seen The Good Place, you'll know the answer. If you haven't seen it, The Good Place uh, centers around this character called Eleanor, and it begins with her waking up in the afterlife. So she's died, she's woken up in the afterlife, she doesn't know what's going on, and she has this first conversation with a bureaucratic kind of an angel figure. And, uh, and, and anyway, this is what happens. Um, so who was right? I mean, about all of this? Well, let's see. Hindus are a little bit right. Muslims a little bit. Jews, Christians, Buddhists. Every religion guessed about 5%, except for Doug Forsett. Who's Doug Forsett? Well, Doug was a stoner kid who lived in Calgary during the 1970s. One night he got really high on mushrooms and his best friend Randy said, hey, what do you think happens after we die? And Doug just launched into this long monologue where he got like 92% correct. I mean, we couldn't believe what we were hearing. That's him actually right up there. He's pretty famous around here. I'm very lucky to have that. So there you go. He had the right answer, and it's strange because we do have this sort of idea that there is a correct way to think about God, to think about religion. And each of the religions we've just mentioned, um, they all present the idea of God in various ways. Sometimes they are competing ways. And even within each of those religions, uh, ideas about God are not all the same, they're not all consistent. But our discussion tonight is going to focus on how we can think about God within a Christian context uh, that goes beyond some of the caricatures of God that we're all so familiar with. This sort of wise, old, benevolent figure in the sky that grants wishes and demands devotion, that sort of caricature. How do we get beyond that? How do we think of God in a better way, a more advanced way even, uh, within a Christian context? So I suppose the first question to ask is, how did we even come to have this view of God uh, as an all-powerful male figure up in the sky or in some other dimension? 
Well, it comes from something called theism. So theism is the belief in one or more deities to who, whom humans are subject. If you believe that there is just one of these deities, then that is monotheism. If you believe there are many, then that's polytheism. If you believe there are many, but one of them is better than or stronger than all the rest, that's henotheism. So anyway, how did we come up with theism to begin with? See, before there were religions, before there were scriptures, sacred texts, from the earliest of times, humanity has seen the things it has made. It's looked around and seen the shelters it made, the clothes that it made, the spears, weapons, tools, all those things that we knew we made right from the earliest times. And humanity has also seen the things that it hasn't made. It's looked around at the stuff that seems to have come from nowhere. Obviously, we didn't make the trees, the deserts, the rivers, the animals, the mountains, all this other stuff. So where did this stuff come from? A human couldn't have made these. But we, being human ourselves, assumed that it must have been therefore a great human, a superhuman even, or maybe lots of superhumans. And they each had different jobs, one responsible for crops or fertility, or disease, um, sending the rain, you name it. Maybe there were lots of tasks divided amongst many of these super beings in the sky. Speaking of the sky, since most of the stuff we didn't understand in early times occurred somewhere up there, this mysterious firmament above, from where water fell as rain and where these bright objects shone as stars and where this great orb of light just seemed to hover there, that must be where this great superhuman, this great super being, must be where they lived or where those beings lived. So that's how we get theism in the sky. And of course, deference has always been paid towards the male of the species, right? Men usually put themselves in positions of power and authority. And so this great power figure in the sky was often thought of as male. Even today, if you ask someone to imagine a powerful authority figure, nine times out of 10, they'll think of a male. And that's 2020. And so this usually male superhuman, super being figure in the sky took shape and gave birth to what we now call classical theism, which is a super being or many super beings up there in the sky or in another dimension. And really what we have there is just an amped up version of a king or an emperor, right? Those were the most supreme humans we could imagine with the most authority. So this super being in heaven or in the sky must be a king of kings or something even greater. So it's just an amped up version of authority and power. And so this otherness from where all this other stuff came was given human form by us, superhuman form. And we essentially made the gods or God in our own image. Beings like us, just with enhanced size and superpowers. Now, when most people think about God today, their image is not really very far 
from the theistic one I've just described. Oh, we think we've done well because we've gotten rid of polytheism, right? We've gotten rid of the many gods. But all we really did was collect all those different roles into one supreme male being. And it's still theism. It's just monotheism now. So how can we do better? Well, firstly, it's important to remind ourselves, you may or may not have actually heard this, but the word God is not the name of the Christian deity. God is actually a placeholder word which stands in place of that which cannot be named. So when Moses encounters a divine presence out in the wilderness on the side of that mountain, and he asks that presence for its name, he is just told, I am. You see, before that, God did have a name, and the name was El. And so El was one of the Canaanite gods. You may or may not know, but Abraham's father was actually an idol maker. He literally made images and gave names to the pantheon of the multiple super beings that was believed in in that Semitic area. And El was seen at the time by Abraham to be the supreme God and the one that led Abraham out from where he was into the new land. And that was how God was known. So Israel means to wrestle with God. El being God and Israel to struggle or to wrestle with. So it's not surprising that when Moses is apprehended by a divine presence, remember this is many generations after Abraham, it's not surprising that when Moses finds this divine presence in the wilderness that he should ask, which one are you again? Right? What's your name? Because the gods had names. Right? They had images. And you needed to know which one you were dealing with. And Moses isn't quite sure. And then he gets the answer when he asks, what is your name? He is just told, I am, which is a non-name. Moses, it seemed, had not encountered a deity with a name. He had encountered unnameable ultimate reality itself. And so Moses was like, great, how do you spell that? Right? I know that sounds strange, but it's important to remember that in Hebrew, this ultimate reality stopped being called L and came to be known as YHWH. Right? That's how it's spelt. YHWH. So how do you pronounce that? Well, in English you can't, and so we put an A and an E in because we need vowels. We can't just pronounce a load of consonants. So we turned it into Yahweh, a name which we could pronounce. But that actually robs the original name of its intention which was a word that couldn't be pronounced, couldn't really be said easily. In fact, it was actually meant to sound like breath. Y-H, W-H, you see? So unnameable reality doesn't want to be captured in a name that you can say or in an image that you can see. It just wants to be breathed, experienced and unnamed. Through this encounter with Moses, it was time to stop labeling the divine presence with our name around which we could build our own parameters. And by the way, no statues, please. 
right? We see, we see that later on, don't we? No graven images. That's something we remember from Sunday school. So unlike all the other gods and deities, this one didn't want to have a name and didn't want to have an image. We're not doing that thing where I have an image and you can engrave a name or you can pronounce my name or you can um, make a portrait or a statue because if you do, you will end up with a God who is far too small. And that God who is far too small can easily be rejected and that God's existence can easily be denied. Listen to how Richard Rohr puts it here. Do you see, and I, I'm not trying to be rude or crude, but why mainline Christianity is mostly responsible for modern atheism. And I say that as a priest in good standing for 46 years, all right? <laughs> We, we, so we gave, so far, <laughs> we gave the world such a tiny image of God that people have thrown it out with impunity, you know. It was so easy to throw out. <laughs> it was a straw man, uh? whereas you're going to have a hard time being an atheist or an agnostic even with the Trinitarian notion of God. And the dang thing is, it's totally orthodox. <laughs> Everything I'm saying I can justify from Scripture, councils of the church, fathers of the church, saints and mystics, and the experience of prayerful people. John of the Cross said this, God can never be known as an object, but only as a fellow subject where the flow is back and forth. God cannot be known, he puts it in other places, but only loved. Love is not one is the subject and one is the object, but it's a flow in both directions and the flow has gone back and forth so you're right that's jesus basic definition of church whenever two or three are gathered in love which is what it means to be in christ there is the church talk about a it's almost too simple a notion of the church and we didn't want that we wanted something the priest could be in charge of you know understand and i'm not saying that Organized Christianity was not inevitable. It had to happen. You have to have a container to sustain the message. Institutionalization is not wrong, but it does have limits. Can't speak freely. Like yeah, that's right. You can't speak freely. Very good. So we need to remember that the word God is not the name of the Christian deity. If it was, we would have a version of God that was way too small, that was too identifiable, and that would be set within the bounds of our own uh, knowledge and explanations. What we had instead is ultimate reality that couldn't be named. And if you were to ask reality its name, because reality just is, whether you believe it or not, and if you were to ask reality for its name, it might just say, I am. How else would you describe it? And so the real problems came from earliest of times when we fortified and institutionalized what we knew about this otherness, this divine presence. When we gave up our willingness to explore because we now had an explanation, right? We settled for an explanation for a name, 
for an image and we gave up our desire to explore, to learn, to be curious. The problem with an explanation, really, and with knowing, with certainty, is what happens when my explanation is different from yours? What happens when what I know is different from what you know, especially about the Divine Presence, or whatever Divine Presence there may be? Currently, you may have seen in the news, Delhi in India is experiencing a terrible violence between Hindus and Muslims. And we all know about religious violence throughout the centuries, and in fact, the violence that's happening now has been going on since around 650 CE. Right? It's been going on for centuries. Because if you know God within your knowledge, and you have your explanation, then you have conflict with everyone else who knows God in a way other than you, or different from you. Right? You have to have conflict when you have set God within an image and within a name. If you give up your knowing, if you release your explanations, you don't have a fight with anyone. You don't have conflict. The scriptures actually have tried to alert us to this. We read in Romans, Paul saying, Surely God's greatness is unsearchable. We know in the Psalms about uh, saying such as, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Right? In Job, we've got, Surely God is great, and we do not know him. Isn't that fascinating? Here we are, striving to know who God is, what God is like, what the image of God is, what God's name is, right? And way back from the beginning, Job's one of the earliest texts of the Bible. We have, surely God is great, and we do not know God. Now, philosophically, there's an interesting point here. You see, we would all acknowledge, everyone in this room, I'm sure we would acknowledge that our knowledge is always limited. Right? The things I know about the world, about God, about anything, those things are inherently limited. I only know the tiniest, tiniest fraction of what there is to know. So my knowledge is limited. But that which I do not know is unlimited. Right? My ignorance is without bounds and without limits. I will always not know far more than I will know, than I can ever come to know. And so philosophically, the God who can't be known by name or by image or as a super being is inherently more compelling than the God who can be known on those terms. Right? If I place God and I identify God within my own knowledge, what I know or what I can know, then God is confined, and so am I. If I identify God within my ignorance, then God is boundless, and so am I. If I admit that I don't know, then curiosity can happen, attentiveness can happen, because we're curious about um, what we don't know, aren't we? We're just naturally curious to find out because we don't know. 
Do you know the things that I pay least attention to and you pay least attention to? The things you know or the things I think I know. When I see a rainbow, it doesn't fill me with curiosity and wonder about how is it formed? How does this magical set of colors appear? Well, because I know, right? I did that lesson in geography or physics or whatever it was. Okay, I, I get with the water molecules and the refraction of light and the splitting of the spectrum and more or less understand it. So it's not something that grabs my attention. I tend not to pay attention to the things that I know. In fact, how often is the person that you pay the least amount of attention, attention to, your own husband or your wife? You see, after 10, 20, 30, 40 years, well, they aren't a mystery to you anymore, are they? Well, because you know them, you know their habits, you know their likes and dislikes. You've had the same conversations over and over. So that person becomes confined to your knowledge and you tend, it's very easy to, simply not pay attention to them. Certainly not as much attention as you might pay to a stranger or someone you've just met because, well, there you've got stuff to find out about them, don't you? You can learn about them. So again, if we identify God within our knowledge, what we know or what we can know, then God is confined, and so are we. If we identify God within our ignorance, that which we don't know, then God is boundless, and so are we. So the God of advanced Christianity wants to be more present in your unknowing than in your knowing. I mean, think about it. Of all humans, which have the least knowledge, right? Which humans know the least? Well, obviously it's children because our knowledge grows over time and through our learning. But when we're born, we know nothing. We're attentive to and curious about everything. Children have the least amount of acquired knowledge. And doesn't Jesus say that the kingdom of God belongs to such as these? Right? And doesn't he also say, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you can't even begin to experience the kingdom of the unknowable God. Unless you surrender your knowledge and take on again unknowing, well, you can't even begin to experience this expansive divine presence. So unless we change and go through that unlearning and renew our curiosity and attentiveness, we're going to miss it. The biblical word for that idea, if you were to just condense it into one word, is repent. Repent means to change, to surrender what you know in order to acquire that which you do not yet know. Another way of speaking about it might be, like we read about in John 3, being born again. Restarting the whole process of becoming a child again and being open to learning, exploring, giving up the explanation we think we have and taking back again the willingness to learn and to grow. This is the invitation that Moses receives from God. He doesn't get a name. He doesn't get L or any of the other names. He gets Just breathe. And so the encounter Moses has is important because God refuses to be named and no idols were to be made, no graven images. And we think we've done well there, don't we? Because we tend not to make statues of God. No graven images here, right? Not in our homes or our churches. 
The thing is, we've done worse. We've made internal graven images. We've imagined God in certain ways that are usually male, usually fatherly, paternal, uh, elderly, right? How many of us imagine God as young? Right? We might say we don't have that image of God as an old man in the sky, but how many of us realize or imagine God in any other ways? Do you imagine God as female? Do you imagine God, as I said, uh, as young? Do you imagine God as present right here rather than up or out there? So the problem is that the internal graven image prevents us from exploring more. And internal images are worse than exterior ones. They're harder to get rid of. And if we're honest, we have to admit that our ideas about God have been fashioned in the graven image of a patriarchal ancient Near East king. And it's so easy to fall into this trap, especially when it's all institutionalized and prepackaged for you in the form of the church or a religion, just there for you to accept. You just put your hand up and say, yep, I want to belong. And we say, yep, here you go. This is what you're supposed to believe. And you get handed the graven image along with everyone else. And so how do we get out of this trap? How do we help ourselves to think more expansively about the God who is unnameable and even unimaginable? Right? Alan Watts. Um, he often starts his talks with a story about uh, one of the first Apollo astronauts who returned to Earth and was interviewed by a reporter who asked, well, did you see God? You've been up there beyond the sky, into the heavens, so to say. Did you see God? And the astronaut replied, yes, I did. And so the reporter asked, well, tell us. Tell us about God. And he replied, she is black, right? He's been up there in the blackness of space and comes back with this contrary and provocative statement about God. She is black. Now, obviously, God is not just a white male or just a black female or just in the sky. God is all those things and more but it is the more that we so often miss out on, right? The psalm that says, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding, doesn't mean just believe what the pastor says about God and stick to that image. It means don't reduce God to simply that which you can understand. The problem is we've all done that. We have reduced God to that which we understand and the only way to help us out of that rut, right, to help us out of that uh, furrow we've got ourselves in, is to begin to imagine God in other ways. So, she is black. I'll sometimes talk about God as she or as mother, and it's not just because I'm trying to be politically correct and all woke and, and sound all progressive. It's to alert us to the reality that there is more. We need to be provoked. And unless we explore other ways of thinking about God, we will be stuck with the one we were handed. And so, yes, God is female. Yes, God is black. Yes, God is young. Yes, God is beyond creation. And yes, God is within creation. 
here's uh, something to think about. And again, this is something Alan Watts talks about. If I showed you a, a sketch uh, of Michelangelo's David or a sketch of a butterfly or, or anything on a page, you might say, well, that's a, that's a wonderful image. And you would admire the image. But what you wouldn't see or pay attention to is the page behind the image. The page of the image is actually drawn on. And the strange thing is, is that the page is actually the substantive part, right? It stands below. Substantive, sub, below, stantive, stands. You see, we tend to pay attention to the things which are within the field of vision, things that are on the page and that we can name and describe. We attend to things that, are, that we are conscious of rather than that from which consciousness itself springs, the actual substance of being itself, that which stands below, the substantive part, is what we miss. We can't even really begin even to think about consciousness because consciousness itself is the thing we use to think with. Right? It's like trying to see your own eyes. The thing you can't see is absolutely necessary for seeing everything. It's the substantive part. And yet we can't even really begin to get our heads around it. Now, all this might seem like impenetrable philosophy. But it's also highly accessible. All you have to do is just sink into being. Sink into being itself. Remember, even children get it, and that's the point. In one sense, it's so easy just to relax and to see the page. I mean, the page is right there. And experience God as much more than we ever have before. If we let go of God or the image of God as just a powerful being, then we can be attentive to the God who is the ground of all being, that which is the substantive, the, subs the substance of all, upholds all, who is the foundation of all, right? And that's really what Christianity calls God. It's not his or her or its name, it's just the word we use to describe the reality, the substantive part of reality from which all else springs and moves and has its being, right? It was Paul himself who said that. God is not far from any one of us, so God is inherently accessible. For in him we live and move and have our being, he says. Paul is here not so much talking about a super being, but the ground of all being itself. You see, it is absolutely possible to be Christian and believe in God without being theistic about God. And that's the main point I'm trying to make here. You can believe in God, and I would suggest you should and probably do believe in God, actually, if you're honest, without being theistic in the sense of God is a powerful figure out there in the sky or in some other dimension. See, while we have continued uh, to look up to the sky for a small, nameable God, ultimate reality, being itself, 
is speaking to Moses and says, the ground on which you stand is holy, right? Don't look up, look down at the ground and take off your sandals. Stop insulating yourself from the ground of all being, for it is holy. And why is the ground on which Moses was standing holy? Because all ground is holy. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Since the land itself is an expression of God, is the substantive part of God. So Moses encounters ultimate reality. And the first thing he needs to do is get rid of the graven images, lose the names and the labels, and sink into being. Take away the insulation, feel the ground beneath the bare skin of your feet, and stand on a new foundation. This is what we now call God. So, which religion is right? Right? Like we said at the start, there's all different ways of talking about God. Well, insofar as by religion we mean an institutional set of theistic beliefs and practices, whether that's monotheism or um, polytheism, all of them are insufficient. But Christianity does point to a far larger, more mysterious and more wonderful God than we ever realized. And it has done for a long time. Far too many people have given up on discovering God and they've made do with religion instead. They've said, we now know and this is our knowing and our explanation and your knowing and your explanation must be wrong because we can't both be right. Either you shouldn't exist or I shouldn't exist and so we have conflict, right? That's what happens when you have a defined explanation and image unnamed. But God is not like Apollos or Zeus or Marduk or any of those names. God isn't a name at all. It's just a way of speaking about the unsearchable, unnameable, unimaginable ultimate reality that suspends and underpins everything. And only after we drop our graven images of God, and we have to admit many of these images were handed to us by our own religion, through our own culture. And only after we drop these graven images can we come into the presence of the God who has no image. And the way forward is love. This is how we get there, because in Christianity, God is love. Love renews and love respects. Think about that word, respect. Richard Rohr, again, points out that to respect means to look again. Spect has to do with seeing, so we have spectator, spectacle, spectrogram, it's all to do with seeing, and re means again. So respect, look again. And you see why that's important? Because unless we're willing to look again, to give up our explanations, we can't experience renewal. And so love renews, it respects, it looks at our husband or wife or life partner and says, yes, I've known you 20, 30, 40 years. I have my explanations of who you are and uh, 
all that, but I'm going to drop that today and look at you new today. I'm going to respect you and therefore allow you to be recreated in my image, in the way I see you. Love, respects, and we can respect creation. We can look again at the trees, the animals, the mountains, the rivers, and having not seen God in them before, now we can begin to see God because we love, we live in love, we respect, we see anew. The opposite is also true. When we say we know God and we have God summed up, then we disrespect God. We refuse to look again. And we're left with a diminished version of God that leaves no room for love, really. And yet it's our own scriptures that tell us they who live in love live in God. So to fully experience what Paul's talking about, the God who is ultimate reality itself and not a man or a woman or a superhuman at all, but ultimate reality itself, that God, in order to be in that God and to live and move and have our being in that God, we need to live in love. And that's the invitation to renewal itself. May we be and may we become a people who are willing to drop our graven images, our names, our labels, our ideas, our explanations, and lean into unknowing, lean into the unsearchable, unfathomable reality that we call God and receive a renewed life and learn what it means to respect, to live in love again, to sink into the substantive part of all reality, the substance, that which stands below the ground of all being, that which we know as God.